Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the WGA strike as well as the SAG-AFTRA strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight. Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support the cause. Also, please check out SAGAFTRA.org for additional resources. Making movies is hard, but casting for your movie doesn't have to be. With Casting Calls America, you can post your open roles for free in over 30 local markets nationwide. And when you post your roles, they will automatically post to IMDb Pro to get even more eyes on your project. All actor submissions are delivered to your user-friendly dashboard, making your casting process easy. You can even search our actor databases and invite actors you're interested in to audition to your project. Actors pay a small monthly fee and have all open roles delivered to their inbox each day. Get your project started today. It's casting made easy at castingcallsamerica.com. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently in development on on a few more, but I, uh, but I mainly I'm focusing on Best Friends Forever, a horror comedy. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to work at Sundance, managing the creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome writer-director Jeff Graham on the show to talk about directing his first feature, Always Lola, which came out on August 1st. He also talks about getting started in the world of podcasting and uh, his switch over from that to focusing on writing and directing while still producing and co-hosting a podcast. After that, we play another round of You're the Expert. But first, Alric, how are you? I'm good. I am, you know just in the waiting game of uh, finding out when my son's going to be born. And I feel like every day it changes. Like one day I think it's going to be a week and the next day I think it's going to be tomorrow or, or not even day, like moment, like, like this morning I was like, yeah, next week. And then uh, after my lunch today, I was like, hmm, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, you know, that's really what's going on with me. I'm watching some movies, you know, I just binge silo. Have you seen silo? No. Oh my God. Oh my God. You should watch silo. It's so good. I don't know. You're not as big of a, a sci-fi fan as me. I no, but Sean likes sci-fi. Yeah, and it, and it's not like it's the kind of sci-fi where it's really about the stories and the characters. It's not overtly like all yeah. about like you. You don't have to love spaceships to be into it, you know. Yeah. So like, yeah, it's a really really great show. Plus Rebecca Ferguson's in it, <gasps> and I love she's her. so good. And they have a really amazing cast around her too. Like and Tim Robbins is in it too, and it's like. Mwah. Amazing. Uh, she's amazing. Have you been watching any of the other Apple shows? Like anything on Apple? Because Apple's got some incredible stuff. My friend, done. well, my uh, my former producer from film school directed this season's Brigadoon or Schmigadoon. Oh, Schmigadoon, so cool. So we've seen a few episodes of Schmigadoon and then of course Ted Lasso. But other than that, no. We're just watching, we're catching up on Joe Bob. We're on Beyond nice. the Door 3 right now. So we're oh, still wow. behind. Yeah. Yeah, Severance is another one that's like oh, incredible yeah. on Apple. But Ben Stiller's that in that. Ben Stiller's in. Sorry, I have. Oh, Ben about Stiller's ben Stiller. not, He's not. He's not in it. He just. He just directs it. I don't want to support him. <laughs> what? Oh God! Can you talk about this? I'm sure he's lovely, but a very, very good friend of mine worked for him, and so I have this like vendetta against Ben Stiller because he was not very nice. Was he mean? Like, like unnecessarily mean, or was he just like yeah. passionate? Or yeah, he was oh, just like, yeah. like I don't think sh- I think they were breaking their NDA by telling me, and so I can't say the details. But I would just say. I, he's a celebrity. They're all horrible, and I sh- and it's apparently a great <laughs> show. So why should I be so mad about this one show that looks amazing? But I you won't know, watch it. It's funny because I I feel that same way when I hear about celebrities being bad. Like I I mean, what's the last Michael Bay thing I watched? Like I can't remember. But like yeah, I heard a story about him like throwing coffee in the face of a PA, and I'm just like. <gasps> I can't, I can't co-sign this, babe. It's hard. This is it's ridiculous. Hard. Yet I have you no know. problem with Roman Polanski. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, what's that about? Like, I don't know. What is the? What is that about? That's weird. You should also ban Roman Polanski. I really should. He's horrible but as well. That movie he made is really good. Uh, what's it called? No. Well, Chinatown. I mean, like no, no. everything. Oh my god, you haven't seen this movie? I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's 
Christoph Waltz, Kate Winslet. God, who are the other two? They're, oh, uh, uh, John C. Riley. And then the last one, I don't remember their name. Oh, Carnage. F- no, I haven't seen Carnage. Carnage. Carnage is so good. You have I'm to see sure Carnage. I'm sure I love it. I'm sure it's amazing. Uh, He's an amazing filmmaker. They're, these yeah. atrocious individuals can be amazing filmmakers. And I need to just watch Severance and get over it is what the problem yeah. is. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like actors and directors and famous people being being terrible is like something that we shouldn't be standing up for though you know like it's like like you know the world agrees upon like these really bad things like Roman Pulaski whatever but the world has not agreed that what's his name the other guy who's terrible uh, the guy who throws phones oh David O. Russell David O. Russell like everyone knows he's terrible but like people still go to his movies he still gets to make movies I'll watch all his movies even though he's a horrible why is so terrible but he didn't hurt my friend (laughs) he hurt like hundreds of other people he punched like George George Clooney got all you know I guess I don't know but maybe George Clooney's not the greatest guy I don't know it's not it's like if you hurt my friend I'm gonna get real cranky at you and I'm gonna hold these like long you know Like, uh, I don't even, I'm on hunger strike against Ben Stiller. I don't know. Interesting. (laughs) So I should watch that. That sounds good. I'm trying to think. We are watching, I mean, I'm waiting patiently for Sean to finish Bear season one because I can't, can't, I'm just dying to get to season two. Do you watch Dave? No, but I know you like it a lot. I love Dave. Dave is amazing and not enough people watch it. It's so fantastic. I'm just trying to think of what else we're watching. Oh, I'm watching Love's Greek to Me on the Hallmark Channel, and it's about them going to Greece and dealing with a dysfunctional Mm. family. That sounds like fun. So good. It's like a two-hour movie that I break out into like five-minute segments once a day. That's that's so funny. That's what Uh, we're doing. the one thing I wanted to say on the the whole celebrity vendetta <laughs> thing is like I I had like one negative encounter with Tim and Eric like a million years ago oh. where they were just rude to me as a PA and like it wasn't like so bad but they it, it was enough where I was like hurt by it at the time and like I think at the like whatever twelve years later I'm like I'll let it go <laughs> I don't I don't have to think they're terrible just because that one time that they were like oh. rude to me I would I'd still hold on to that Eric like I would <laughs> probably for eternity I mean. Yeah. Like I, I get it. You don't want to reward that the the like uh, first person accounts that you experience. It's hard to reward that kind of behavior. But but we need to separate the art from the artist. Yeah, to some degree, to some degree. But what we also need to do is go to our Patreon page and encourage people to donate to it. Don't forget to support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast is how we keep the show going for $1.99 a month, which is like one fourth of a Chipotle burrito. It is so little. You get the entire back catalog of every single episode that's not available on Apple Podcasts. So please do check it out. Also, don't forget to check out Jambox.io, which is a new royalty-free uh, music and SFX company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay, oh, the illustrious, lovable Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, <laughs> global brands like DJI. They even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty awesome. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Jeff Graham. Well, we're here with Jeff Graham. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Y'all, I'm so excited to be here. I was telling you before we went up, I'm like a nerd for this show. So I'm like a little (laughs) nervous, but super excited. I also, it's fun to be among fellow filmmakers. I watched both of y'all's debut features before hopping on, and I'm sure most of your audience has already seen them. But if not, they're both wonderful. I really enjoyed, they're so uniquely different. So I feel like I got this like mini film festival of enjoying both of your features and really well-made, well-acted, great writing, super fun. Yeah. It's very nice Thank of you, you to say. You're yeah, welcome. very kind. So, but putting the the focus on you, give us the elevator pitch for your first feature, Always Lola. Yes. So, Always Lola is a coming of age camping dramedy, kind of in the vein of '80s hangout movies. Like you can think of John Hughes movies, like The Breakfast Club, or if you like Lawrence Kasdan, I think there's some big chill in there. But the movie follows five high school grads who are reuniting on their annual camping trip to mourn the loss of their kind of once ringleader, the title character Lola. And when they reunite on this trip, 
Secrets around her death start to slowly leak out, some of them being hidden among the friend group. And as those secrets pour out, this group kind of really has to reassess their own friendship, their memory of her, and sort of confront their own mortality as coming-of-age people in the world. So yeah, I'm proud of it. And I feel like if you're a fan of like 80s hangout movies, it's kind of a movie for you. Well, I love Lawrence Kasdan. So you best, got me right? there. He is the best. Yes. How many days did you shoot? It was an 11 day shoot, um, which included nights. So it's kind of that I'm sure you guys have talked about like that two week kind of magic micro budget window where you get one weekend. And yeah, I mean, it was incredibly fast. But as I'm sure so many filmmakers who come on the podcast talk about, we really limited locations. So we made all of our days and all of our pages in, in 11. Yeah. And then what was the rough budget of the movie? Yeah, so I had pre-production budget. It's interesting. We shot in Ohio and we actually shot in my college town. And I have a lot to say about sort of like a university as a nucleus for a production, especially like kind of a middle of nowhere, like rural state university. So a lot of our budget actually went towards like flights and food, but in terms of, and then paying for talent, but we were such a skeleton crew. We knocked out production for like, I'd say like 24 to $28,000. And then with all of our post-production costs, like, you know, and color and everything, I think we're going to be somewhere around 40 for the total all in. Wow. It's amazing. Thanks. Yeah. We uh, just had, we only had what we had. So that's, that's what we used. We will audit you later. What was the (laughs) origin of the idea? How did it come to you? Yeah. So I think I mentioned in the elevator pitch, the movie kind of revolves around the death of a young person and When I was in high school, I actually lost one of my closest friends. You know, we were really close. Actually, I should amend that. She died when I was in my early to mid-20s, but we were best friends in high school. This movie takes a slight spin on that because these characters are like late teens, early 20s when the death actually happens. But I always like to say that a lot of young people have lost like a parent or a grandparent or someone older than them. And that's a very specific type of grief. But I think every young person can point to that kind of coming of age moment in their own life when they lose a peer. And I think it's like a very unique way to confront your understanding of your own life, because all of a sudden you're seeing someone who's your age disappear. So I think that was a really profound experience for me. I think it kind of grew me up in a lot of ways. And, you know, there's like, you talk about in English class, like that loss of innocence moment for young people. And I think in some ways, my friend Peggy, that was her name. The the movie's really for her. Her death was like a big kind of like life confronting event for me. And as you all know, sometimes as artists, the best way to sort of work through our grief and our trauma is to write about it. So that was really the origin of the idea. How long did you spend working on the film from the idea to it being released? It's a great question. I will say I kind of went into the idea knowing I wanted to make it. And I really think of myself as a writer first. It's been interesting because I directed this feature as well. And I feel like if anything, people are more excited about me as a director than a writer. So I'm having to do like some identity gymnastics to figure out like who I am as a filmmaker. But I had optioned a half hour pilot when I first moved out to LA and was meeting on other scripts. But I really wanted to just kind of make that first feature. And I would love to hear your two thoughts on this. But I feel increasingly like the debut short is kind of being replaced by the debut feature. I really think it's a valuable calling card to have a full feature. And what's what's great about a feature is there's actually a market for it. You know, I think shorts are great and shorts can be a great calling card for you. But it's nice when you create something that you can actually sell and sort of it exists in this container that you can sort of pitch and tell folks like who might not be interested in shorts, like here's a movie that you can watch. It, I just think it's a bit of an easier proposition to get people to watch it, which is ironic because they're longer. But I think <laughs> I I sort of had this dream of just getting my own feature up on its feet. And so I wrote it in 2018, very specifically with the idea of making it. And we can talk about like sort of how to approach the page if you know you're going to be staging it. And I was rewriting for about two years and actually conducting table reads often in development with many of the cast members who are in the movie. So a lot of their voices are all over the movie, even before we got to set. And then we shot in August of 2021. So I would say I was kind of in development and writing for about two years, kind of softly though. And I will say I made a very kind of concrete decision to actually make it. I feel like it existed very theoretically. And, you know, I was saving money wanting to shoot it. And we have one producer who has mostly been paid back because of our MG on the sale. But in winter of 2021, kind of like mid-pandemic, I feel like my wife and I looked at each other and we were like, you've been talking about making this movie for like a decade. 
Like, obviously, COVID was such a disruptive time, but I do think if there were any positives that came out of it, a lot of people sort of reassessed what they were doing in their life and their purpose. And as things slow down, you're forced to kind of actually look in your own artistic mirror. And I think my wife said it so beautifully. She's like, Jeff, I think we have two very hard options in front of us. One of them is to both be 95 in a nursing home, like regretting the movie we never tried to make. And the other is trying to make it. And both of those sound really, really hard. But I actually think the regret sounds harder. So in March of 21, we decided to like actually commit to making it. And we were shooting on August 1st. Wow. And then it drops on TVOD on August 1st, actually. That's crazy. I didn't even think about wow. that. It's like exactly two years from pre-production. Um, so August, I don't know when this is releasing, but August 1st, 2023 is when it's available. So we played festivals in 22, and then we're going to be on TVOD in 23. If you could change one thing about the movie in any way, process, content, whatever, what would it be? I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. We really, really had a skeleton crew, but there's one crew position I would definitely add in retrospect. Really, the only crew that we ran with were me directing it, my executive producer, who's also my wife that I mentioned earlier in this conversation, an AD. We kind of folded scripty and wardrobe into one position because they're kind of closely tied with continuity. We had one hair and makeup person. I think I mentioned my DP, but he was also running camera. And then a couple PAs, but that was really it. And I think I would have, oh, and a DIT. I think like you can't really make a feature without a great, you know, data and footage and dailies person. But our, our film is very object heavy. There's sort of this scavenger hunt that runs through the, the story. And um, so we just had a ton of props and we did not have a prop master on set. And like, there's this like Skittles bag that recurs throughout the movie and kind of ends up having a pretty important story point in the third act. And the number of times we were looking for that bag of Skittles was enough to like almost ruin the production. So I think just like <laughs> forking up the money for a prop master just to kind of help us keep our minds on. It was like our brains had enough space for everything but props. So that's what I would do differently. Nice. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to go like back to like your feelings about your your movie now that like it's done. I know mm-hmm. that and, and it's sold you know, to a distributor and it's like got a release date and everything. Like, what is your headspace now? Like, how are you feeling about the movie as your first feature? Yeah. And and what are your expectations and like goals for the film, you know, with the release? Or do you have any? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's funny. I kind of went into it. Obviously, I think in some ways it's important to have goals as an artist because like we need a reason to get out of bed. But I think if we have like very lofty sort of, I don't know what exactly the right word is, but almost like career goals with our work, it can kind of fuck with our process. Am I allowed to swear? I just realized. Yeah, please. Okay. It can kind of fuck with our process a little bit. So I literally looked at Laura when we were planning this, and I think I mentioned our budget, at least for production, was like 24 to 28 grand, somewhere in there. And I was like, you know, this is like about a semester, maybe a year of film school. And I'm like, I could, I was thinking about film school and I was like, but part of me thinks like, I would rather just kind of risk this, the savings that we have on trying to do it myself. And if the movie's great, that's awesome. But if it's bad, then I gave it a shot and I can at least, you know, feel good about what I tried. It's almost scarier that we've had a little bit of success. We like won best feature at our first festival and we've played some other cool festivals and There's something actually terrifying when you get that taste of success, because then all of a sudden you feel like the artistic gods are like telling you to keep going, which can sometimes almost feel worse than just like an abject failure. So I know that's a very negative way to look at it, but it's interesting now because I'm really proud of the movie. But as you look toward your next thing, I was pitching a little bit before the strike and it's, you know, it's a scary life that we chose as filmmakers. So I'm feeling good about it. It's in some ways, it feels like a different me that wrote it because, you know, the first draft happened five or six years ago. But I still think like in terms of my voice as a writer, especially, I'm I'm kind of all over the movie. So I still feel good about that part. Ask me again in five years and that answer might be different. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I, I really want to ask this question because I was exactly where you were a year ago. So like mm-hmm. I was in the same position and like now I've lived through it and I'm like, a, like, you know, six months post my movie coming out. So I'm just really curious, like your headspace compared to my I know. headspace at the time. I think <laughs> honestly, I, I've listened to so much. I can, I think be, I think I'm a glass half full person like in my life, but professionally I can be a little glass half empty. So I think I've just like tried to tell myself every worst case scenario along this journey. 
um, as a way to protect my sensitive little writer soul, <laughs> just in case things <laughs> like if, you know, numbers aren't that great when we release. So I think I've just tried to protect my my piece. I've kind of like set the bar low with every step and then been pleasantly surprised when things have gone well. Nice. This is not a question. I do have a question, but your producer's name is Laura Palmer. It really is. Yes. Yeah, Are you a David a, Lynch fan? My dog who's sitting next to me, her name is Laura Palmer. That's a, I want to tell you a quick, quick story if we do no, keep this I, in the show. If it's about David Lynch, I will. Yes, go for it. So for anyone who doesn't understand the reference, first of all, change everything and drop everything and go watch season one of Twin Peaks. But we're talking, of course, about famed filmmaker David Lynch and his debut television show, Twin Peaks. And the title character is a dead homecoming queen named Laura Palmer. And that is also my wife's name. And she was born about three months before that show came out. And ABC was really aggressively marketing that show. So all over her town were these billboards that said, who killed Laura Palmer? Palmer. (laughs) And of course, my wife's parents, my in-laws, are like what have we done <laughs> it's just like <laughs> crazy times so this joke she, isn't uh, funny anymore yeah this is, yeah, I love exactly. that. yeah so that funny. was an accidental iconic name well congratulations i love it <laughs> to your yeah. wife the question is a little bit about not foresight but anticipation i mean most people who decide to make a micro budget film who may do something like a, a camping movie I, I think you know what I'm going to say, are going to go do an exploitation horror film in the woods, right? right? And so you you didn't. You did a drama, right? And mm-hmm. if I may call it that. And I'd be yeah, curious, is it is it because that was, that was the itch you wanted to scratch, the story you wanted to tell? Or was there a commercial goal that you were thinking about hitting with regard to the combination of camping, Ohio, the budget level, and drama? I think if I was thinking commercially, I probably would have made a horror movie instead of a drama movie, truthfully. You both know that on the call. You know, I think, honestly, because I sort of went into it without a huge framework of financial expectations or huge career success, I sort of knew that this was my chance to try to tell the story with the money I had that felt as like truthful to who I am as a writer as I could. So I think... I think this feels like the kind of movie I already like. And one thing I like to tell writers especially is like, write the movie you would really, really want to see. And I think I'm obviously biased and I have a warped perspective, but I think if I were to see my film at a festival, I would really like it. So that's like a nice, so obviously not everything because you leave your own feature. There are certain things that you watch back and aren't quite how you expected, but for the most part, I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. And yeah, I think I don't watch a ton of horror movies. I, it's not that I have anything against it, but I just know as a writer and director, I don't think I would have succeeded, at least at this point in my journey as an artist making a horror movie. Yeah, I was viewing this much more as like a experiment and an opportunity to kind of see what I could do within the confines of the budget we have to try to as closely mirror my voice as a writer on screen. So that's really kind of why I approached it the way I did. I mean, everything I write tends to be pretty personal. Not that you can't do horror personally, because all the best horror movies of the last decade are very personal, but it's just not, it's really not my bread and butter. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just the, saw the, what I did there. <laughs> that's the name of Liz's debut feature, which I mentioned, which is again a wonderful movie. All right, I interrupted you, Ulrich. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, what you said about, like, if you were to go to a film festival and see your own movie and then you would like it. Like, I think if that's the goal that we all had as filmmakers, like, if we can achieve, if we hit that, then I think that we've won in mm-hmm. a humongous way and that, like, anything else is just, you know, gravy on top. So I, I love that you said that. And I feel kind of the same way about my movie that like if I that's saw it at a, at a film festival, I'd be like, yeah, that's rad. <laughs> I love well, that. That makes ending. a ton of sense. I mean, you're a genre <laughs> writer, you're a sci-fi writer. So it's like, right. you should. I mean, I think like, don't you think we can all feel when the movie turned, when the writer was trying to make a film they thought would be good or like they thought oh. would, you, you can oh. just feel it right away from like the first Terrible. frame. And I think like, that's actually, I think the worst advice you can give someone is like, make someone you think, or make something you think people would like. You know, it's like, I really think you should try to make something that you really like, because then at least you can stand by it when it's finished. Yeah, totally. So I want to ask about your release plan. Like, do you have any like things, you know, in line for when the movie comes out, like any like marketing that you're going to do or like a game plan for yourself on how to like get the word out on the movie, like anything that you have like already strategized that you could tell us about? Yeah. Well, I'm doing podcasts, obviously. I'm on this great podcast right now called Making Movies is woo, Hard. Woo, woo. It's interesting. I have, I co-host a podcast with write, some writers from Pixar called The Screenwriting Life. So I think like one of the reasons I'm trying to hit the podcast sort of ecosystem hard is because 
people may be familiar with my work already in that sort of world. So I'm hoping to maybe kind of capitalize on any small audience that I might have through that other show that I do. Um, I also think podcasts are just a great space to actually talk about me- the meaningful aspects of filmmaking rather than just like the quick hit, like two minute interview, which I think can be really hard to make interesting. Yeah. I, th- I think too, this is an interesting kind of approach to the film that my wife who produced it and I talked about was I've been a podcast producer for over a decade and I worked for this kind of network called AfterBuzz TV. It was a co-production with Popcorn Talk Network, both run by the entertainment journalist Maria Menounos. And because of that, I was encountering like all of these up and coming hosts who were hosting like podcast shows and after shows for TV and movies. But a lot of them have kind of built like really committed niche micro followings on their social media through like the hosting work that they've done. But a lot of them aren't necessarily like career hosts. Like their goal would be to be acting or writing or doing something else. They've just kind of almost accidentally built tangential followings through their work. I guess you like, I hate this term, but you could call them like digital micro influencers. So three of our, three of our cast members kind of have those sort of rabid niche audiences. And it's kind of nice as we're approaching marketing and the release because they can sort of arm their audiences to be excited to go watch the movie. So I know it can be hard to book like A-list actors and big names, especially if you're making a micro feature. But And I don't like the idea of like booking an influencer just to book an influencer. But I had happened to know that these three really talented hosts were actually aspirational actors first and, you know, ran them through auditions. And we did the whole rigmarole with them. But there's sort of a serendipity to the fact that they also have a nice marketing wing as they approach, as we approach the release. So it's something to think about. I think I would only ever advise to hire good actors, but if you can find actors with some kind of following or, you know, niche audience that will help you as you approach the release of whatever you're making. What about you? I mean, why go into podcasting knowing that you also have this parallel goal of screenwriting and directing is that a means to an end is it just a jobby mm-hmm. job or is it fall like does it fuel just like it is for you right now fueling a marketing campaign for the work that you're going to put out into the world it's a great question i think for a long time i'd say like my first eight years as a professional in los angeles were like full-time podcast producer and again, I was working for that network. And eventually I was co-producing Maria's show. I'm trying to think your audience might know Maria because she'll do like the intro to mm-hmm. the movies. Oh, That's yeah. like how most cinephiles know her. If you get there <laughs> mm-hmm. early enough, before Nicole Kidman walks through that iconic puddle, you see Maria Menounos uh, talking about more TV stuff. But <laughs> it got to a point where I, I obviously moved out to LA to write. I mentioned I had optioned a half hour, but I got sort of so sucked into the world of podcasting that I had lost any time or space to be writing. And I sort of fell into a trap that I think a lot of LA creatives fall into where they think that if they can get like a great PA job or cool producer job or something that's like industry adjacent, they've made it. And it's also nice to like go home and tell your parents or friends, like, I work for this entertainment journalist, like I'm a Hollywood person now. And I think there's a lot of like identity (laughs) politics that you're sort of navigating as you're having those conversations. But actually, I'm going to steal this from my um, other podcast co-host, Meg LaFove, who wrote the movie Inside Out. She says that that's like being a shadow artist and a lot of people move out here and they'll become development executives or producers kind of as a shadow artist to what they really dreamed of doing. Actually, Meg admits that she did this. She used to run Jodie Foster's production company and she was like a big Hollywood power player and like meeting with De Niro in rooms. But like on the side, like, you know, at 9 p.m. as she was closing her eyes, like her heart was breaking because she wanted to be a writer. So she dropped everything and like started at ground zero and like wrote for a Nickelodeon multicam. And it's I mean, it's a crazy life that we choose to do as artists. But like you have to ask yourself what hurts more, like doing it or not doing it. And I think now I would call myself like a part time podcaster. I have a couple shows and it's great income for me just to kind of stay afloat. But I'm really trying to spend all my times in the margins of my day, like writing and pitching. So that is, I'm sure you two can relate to that. Somewhat. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I'm like not in Los Angeles. So I don't really have like the LA thing, you know, and the work that I get to do out here in video production is not like that. Like there isn't a lot of the Hollywood stuff going on, you know, where Mm -hmm. you get to work with movie stars or famous people or whatever. It's mostly like I worked with Google. How about that? <laughs> yeah, it's more or the commercial Facebook. pays well though. <laughs> yeah, sometimes well, I, we those get, gigs <laughs> yeah. pay a little better. 
Oh, well, our market is the most the most highly paid market in video production in the country in San right. Francisco. So we yeah. get paid more than anybody here, which is right. which is really bizarre, you know. But I guess it makes sense because Silicon Valley. I just I feel like when you were doing the podcast thing, like was that like was podcasting a big deal when you started? Because that was like a long time ago, right? Like was podcasting already hot, or kind of did you get in like sort of in the beginning before it Early. became? what it is now or it's was it already kind of gangbusters i'm trying to remember it would when serial came out i feel like serial was like the big pre- like um tipping point in terms of like podcasting becoming like a mainstream conversation but i i think i i started at after buzz in like 2015 and it was a little bit podcasting isn't quite the right term because we were like that hybrid like digital streaming show it's interesting though the network started in like 2013 and the executive producer kevin undergaro who's actually a producer on my film i think he would say that he might have been a little early even when he started like when he was first like kind of pitching people on like watch this after show on youtube or listen on demand on a podcast I think people were kind of like, what language is this? Um, I feel like the sort of digital <laughs> streaming ecosystem didn't really kind of find its own until like the mid 2010s. So I feel like I, I'm pretty sure I started my podcasting career after Serial, which I feel like was enough of a moment. I mean, like Serial is like the, it's like the gone with the wind of podcasting, right? Like I'm trying to think of like a metaphor. <laughs> But I feel like after that, I could talk to like anyone, no matter what part of the country they were from, and they like knew what language I was speaking. I want to talk. I want to get back to Always Lola, if we can. And Good Deed is releasing the film. I just want to hear more about that deal. Yeah. How did you find them? How did you decide with to go with them? And what kind of release are they giving it? Yeah, I hope it's okay for me to share names. I I think someone whose name I'm sure you know Liz Glenn Reynolds with Circus Road Films. I'm trying to remember, he either saw the movie, one of three things happened, and I can't remember now because it was a year ago, but he either saw the movie at our premiere festival, which was the Marina Del Rey Film Festival in Los Angeles. He might have heard about it because we won, or I might have been connected to him because of a friend. But Glenn Reynolds is a sales producer, sales agent, or producer's agent, however you want to say it. Um, I mean, Liz, you would know best because you do this as well. He's a producer's rep. He's, yeah. Producer's rep. That's the word. Yeah. It's funny. It's been a year since like I was in talks with Glenn. So I'm like, what what do we call him? He's a producer's rep, which that's, as you know, Liz, someone who sort of will come on board with your film and advocate for the film as you pitch to distributors and streamers to try to broker a sale. And so Glenn went out to, you know, 30 different, he went to the streamers first to see if he could maybe negotiate a deal directly. And anyone who's been following trade news knows that that isn't really happening anymore. Whether you're a big $100 million movie or a tiny $40,000 movie, maybe that will change with the strikes that are happening right now. We'll see. Um, And then he goes to distributors next. So we ended up getting three deals. And um, our best deal came from a small Ohio-based distributor called Good Deed Entertainment. And they offered us a small MG, which is one of the reasons we were excited because not every indie gets those. And they really seem to understand the movie. And I will say... We're mid-release process as I record this, but so far they've been wonderful to work with. They've been like helpful with marketing and they have an in-house PR person who's been helpful. So I hear some stories of filmmakers who sign with the distributor and then it's kind of like tumbleweeds after that. And we've been lucky that um, we hear back from them when we send an email. So this is my public well, endorsement of my distributor. It's not August yet, nice. Jeff. I know. Yeah. Buckle up, right? <laughs> I'm going to record this publicly as a challenge to Good Deed if they're listening. So far, I'm happy, but let's Hi, see Eric. you uh, pony up. Hi, yeah. Eric Donnelly. You owe me like five emails for what it's worth. <laughs> I hope you listen Eric, to this yeah. podcast. I hope you wow. do. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> oh, man. Getting really insider over here. Uh, that's so funny. Yeah, I guess just to follow up on that, like what what are your expectations for marketing or have they set expectations with you on what their marketing push is going to be when the movie comes out? I will say our PR got us a trade announcement, which was really great. So we showed up in deadline, which was that's nice. You know, I mean, it's not everything, but as I'm like trying to set meetings and, you know, work with rep, it's like great to have that link as sort of like a way to vet that I'm not just like a totally random person. And she's worked with, you know, it's Caitlin is the PR person over at Good Deed. She's worked with some pretty cool filmmakers. Um, she worked on the Florida Project, which any Sean Baker fans oh, out fun. there, or no, I'm sorry, she worked on Tangerine, um, which is another mm. Sean Baker movie, the one before the Florida Project. But um, so she has some real like experience with these kind of like scrappy guerrilla style indies. So I feel like she's been helpful in just like helping kind of cater our messaging and our EPK materials to sort of feel like we can approach press ops with like the right 
sort of lens, if that makes sense. So yeah, I mean, they've been pretty hands-on. They have a very busy summer. I think they're upping their release slate. Liz, you might even know more than me in terms of, but they- They are acquiring more titles, yes. Yes. So that's good. I mean, it's nice to see. I think you want to feel like you're at a distributor that's not releasing like 10 movies a day. And I won't say any names, but there's a couple of distributors that came out to us and that kind of feels like their release strategy. At least at this point, the thing I like about Good Deed is, you know, there seems like they're doing about two a month, which is, that seems like enough time to give. I mean, it'd be nice if it felt like it was... But even A24, you know, that's about what they're doing too. So I I empathize with these distributors who are trying to fight through a market that's really, really challenging right now. And, you know, for these distributors to stay afloat, they have a lot of work that they need to do too. And they need to have a robust release schedule. So I've had, we've had a good experience with them so far. And it feels like the give and take of their busyness with our needs has been pretty, pretty manageable. So yeah. Nice. I want to talk about your website. Uh-oh. <laughs> I know that sounds interesting, but it's like, so when we do the show, we Google, right? We look to see what details are in here. I thought your website was really, really well done. Like, this is only a compliment. Don't you worry. Okay. I know I can be a little acerbic, but like, <laughs> it really is thorough and all the information you need. I would say there are a lot of filmmakers who don't put the time into web marketing or even having a web presence at all. Was that important to you? Is there is there some sort of reason that you wanted such a clean and clear polished landing page? Is this for the movie or for myself? Oh, this is for the movie. I didn't look at yourself say, yet. Oh. I think you, you might have a different take if you were to Google me. I think like... Oh, no. <laughs> I, I did look at your website and I thought that's what Liz was talking about. And I have questions. Yeah, all right. No, you, this is for the, want, film, for the film. I can pass the torch to Alric if you want to shit on my personal website. but <laughs> No, I'm not no, shit. Just questions. No, no, no. Totally. It's funny. I, I don't know if you relate to this, but sometimes as filmmakers, it's like you. it's easier to like talk about your work and like brag about your work than it is to like talk about yourself. So I feel like maybe that's represented in like the film website and my personal website. But you know what I did? I love IFC. I was hoping maybe we'd get a deal from them, but I'm like super stoked with landing with Good Deed. But they have a very specific website template that they use for all of their movies. And I basically just stole it. So I'm going to like, that's <laughs> super candidly what I did. I'm a fan of Cooper Reif. His first movie, Shithouse, is an IFC movie. There's a movie that came out. I, we played the Heartland Film Festival and played next to a movie called Four Samosas that I liked. Yeah, and- yeah, yeah. I know that one. Yeah, it's fun. It's, it was a fun film. Um, but again, that's an IFC release. And I sort of found that there's this like very distinct template that all the IFC movies use. I just watched an IFC movie. Oh, have you all seen Blackberry yet? Uh, it's great. It's like a it's a Matt Johnson film. It's about the rise and fall of like the Blackberry phone. Really oh, great. Oh, no. <laughs> it's fun. It's like if the social network were made for like, like with like a scrappy gorilla indie sensibility. It's I thought it was it's probably one of my favorite movies of the year so far. But that's another IFC movie. So I just kind of looked at those templates and and stole it. So I wish I had like a more elegant answer. But that that's that's it. <laughs> well, quick follow up to that. Has it? I mean, I think of websites as a a repository of information, a memorialization of like a moment in time, like it's a doc, it's a document, right? But have you found that it has helped with gathering an audience or marketing your film? Or is it just for you? I think it's I think it's more like a just in case, right? Like I Mm -hmm. think with marketing, you just sort of want to be try to be conscious of every possible, like you said, repository or destination that a that a potential fan of your movie could find you. So I was like, I don't really go to movie websites. Maybe I do because I was just talking about my like interest in IFC. (laughs) I think more than the average filmmaker you do. I guess you're right. But it's more just that like, I want to feel like I'm bulletproof if anyone were to find me anywhere. It's so funny. TV Guide, the website just like wrote a little synopsis of our movie. I don't know how they found it or got it. But it's so funny because it's like, five best girlfriends reunite on their annual camping trip. And that's <laughs> like our movie is a mixed gender cast. So I've, it feels like it was written by AI. I have no idea. It's very close though. Otherwise, it's like almost perfect except for that like key detail. But I I feel Liz and I'd be curious to hear what you say. But like if you hit the big ones like IMDb, get a website, get a social media presence, figure out how to get on Rotten Tomatoes, it like snowballs and the other ones start to like find it and pick it up. Mm-hmm. So it feels like just like if you hit the big ones and you're very conscious of those kind of billboards, the other billboards will like pick it up because they're interested in like catching the wave. I just mixed metaphors, but hopefully you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just I think part of my question was leading you to talking about whether you have a newsletter or you collect email addresses or things like that, which is like my ongoing soapbox for this podcast. And it's not Mm -hmm. necessary to go into right now, but 
was curious if you were doing direct marketing separate from those channels through your website. It's a really good idea. It's it's funny. I feel like that's not my instinct and it's so few filmmakers instinct, but it is such a powerful tool. I think like transparently, I'm kind of hoping to enter a more like conventional studio track mm -hmm. rather than an independent film producing track. Like the thing I was pitching before the strike was more like a commercial comedy that I probably wouldn't even have enough experience to direct myself. Cause again, like I really think of myself as a writer. Then I have pilot samples that I think would like be better as a vehicle to get me staffed in a room. I will say I have one other feature in my back pocket. That's like another super scrappy, low budget thing that I think is like a low risk project that I could and probably would be the best person to direct. But I think like for those filmmakers who really want to try to make their next one independently and like kind of corral a force of followers and fans to help them make it, it's a really good idea. But as of right now, and I, I could be singing a totally different tune in a year, but as of right now, that's not necessarily like what I envision as my beacon for like my career. I will just uh, second that your film page is very beautiful. Oh, thanks. I used Wix, if that's helpful. <laughs> oh, very good. I was actually going to ask. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it was funny because when I was doing my release, I asked my producer, like, do I need a film webpage? He's like, no, don't don't spend the time. Don't worry about it. Be on IMDb, have a Facebook, have social media, but don't worry about a webpage. And, you know, like, I feel like I see a lot of movies that have webpages and it is nice to have it all in one place. And it is nice to have like something that's like little like really slick that people can find or you can share with people. I also have my EPK, you know, which was like the, mm -hmm. the be all end all sharing thing to, if, if right. people are interested. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like to me, it's like you could do whatever you like either way, like website or no website. You're going to be good no matter what, as long as like what you said earlier, like you're doing all the IMDb and you're getting your movie out into the right places. I'm really curious about your stages now as a writer, obviously, and director before the strike. Like, how are you getting your pitches? How are you getting your meetings? Do you have representation? What does that look like for you? So interesting. I I feel like so I was like having some conversations with Rep before the strike and those have slowed down because of the strike, which is fine. I'm the kind of person who like loves to be chosen. And this is another thing Liz and I went for a hike <laughs> last year. And I feel like I'm so the person who wants to be like, look at this thing I made. Am I good enough? Do you like me? Pick me. Pick me, pick me, choose me. And that was part of the reason, you know, we could have self-distributed, but I like really wanted a distributor to be like, we grant you that we like the movie. So I think I'm, it's interesting. I, that pilot I had written got me a lot of meetings and I had a couple great conversations with Rep that I have since resumed since, especially winning that first festival and with the VOD sale. So in terms of the pitches I had, I was like kind of in talks with before the strike. One thing that's lucky for me is that the other podcast I host, the Screenwriting Life podcast, has given me a little bit of a network with some like, in, like some Hollywood people, like financiers of small production companies. And that's a nice way for me to have an established relationship with people. You know, I was lucky that a number of folks came to a couple screenings that we had in Los Angeles and one producer in particular really liked my first feature. So she's been very excited about this, uh, this next feature I'm pitching. And we were talking before the strike too. And obviously that's changed now, hoping to resume conversations afterwards. But I do think I am learning and feeling that like, I am going to need to be a little more aggressive with rep just in terms of really putting myself out there. Another, it's interesting, I, if I'm talking too much, you all can cut me off, but they always tell you to have that like bulletproof second sample when someone is ready to read your first thing and love it. And because that pilot eyed option at like, this point is kind of dead and the feature that I made is already sold and marketed, it's like you need to have material that rep is actually ready to go out with and sell. And I feel like I had two feature samples that were good, not great. I, I feel like one of them is finally kind of bulletproof enough to go out with, but it's that hard thing where I didn't take the advice that everyone says, which is like when you're ready to take that step with rep, like you have to have more bulletproof samples. So I, I'm in that position right now where I feel like I'm finally kind of ready to take the plunge and go out. But it's nice because I have enough contacts that I feel like I'm kind of able to pitch at the same time, if that makes sense. Nice. But it's a tough thing to know, you know? And, and just to follow up really quick, like when you say you're going to get more serious about uh, finding a rep, like what would that look like? Does that mean cold calling? Does that mean reaching out, like trying to approach reps directly? Like what what are you yeah. going to do when, when the strike's over, basically? I would say like I probably have like eight to ten, like you get one poker chip with me, people, you know, where it's like your connections mm. who are like high up or people you've met or connections you've made. 
And it's like, I want to only play that chip when I feel like I have a great hand, you know? So I've got like that A-list of people that I know I can go with. And then I do think, you know, I've been very specific knowing my voice, looking for the types of rep that would be interested in me as a client based on their their roster. And I do think I'm just going to query. And I, I will say what's nice about having made a feature is like now when I go out and query, I can be like, here's the deadline article announcing the movie. Like here are the laurels. You know, it's not... I know I'm not Aaron Sorkin. I do not even think I am remotely like, but there's a certain level of vetting that happens when you've made something that's been written about in a trade that I feel like at least can help me cut through probably a ton of cold queries and submissions. I'm saying this optimistically. It'll be interesting to see when I actually go out, but it's a tough business out there, (laughs) y'all. Indeed. We're making a few assumptions about your behavior in a strike. Do you want to say how you have adjusted your behavior in a strike, if you have in any way? It's a great question because here I am on a podcast talking about my movie, which like a lot. <laughs> I think there are certain members of the guild that would say I'm possibly crossing. No, they're I'm wrong. Pre- they're wrong if <laughs> yeah. they say that. Because technically, if you're like doing promotion on behalf of a signatory, that would be in violation of what the guild is asking. So like if if you've like booked through a studio rep, I think you're like fueling the system more than you would be if you aren't. But Jeff, we make no money. We make no money exactly. and I we know. make our sorry, I just think that there has to be like great a grayscale to yes. this whole thing. That's why I'm so adamant and cranky about it. I'm also very pregnant. I'll stop talking. Please go ahead and answer <laughs> Wait, the question. No, also, no, are, are are you a member of of WWGA or are you not a member? It's interesting. I'm pre WGA right now because of that podcast sale, but I do think there is a way for me. There's a co-producer on this movie that I think we could figure out how in my... I think my contract actually technically makes me eligible for the guild. I just haven't really (laughs) dived into that pot yet because... Partly because of the strike. Um, so this is all what I, we're figuring out as we approach VOD. But I'm just pre-WGA right now. So I'm, I guess, technically fine to be promoting. But I also want to be cautious of like that pre-scab behavior that, you know, gets talked about. Where it's like they talk about how the right. guild is looking for folks who may be crossing a line. But you're also the director of the, of the project. Right. So I feel like aren't yes. you free to, to promote it as the director? I'm here as the director. You're right. I've, yeah. Anything I've said Come about on. my writing is actually through the lens of me as a director. It's, you know. <laughs> I, I I feel fine about it. And like you said, Liz, like we're a scrappy micro budget indie that's still in the red with our production. So I respect any me- guild member's position on how they want to approach promotion. But I, I think because I've been booking my own press, I feel totally clear conscious about it. I know there are some folks who may disagree with me and that's just kind of where we are right now. So Wait, just to add a little color to my crankiness, like I just think that there's so little money in distribution and this is and I want you to succeed, Jeff. I want you to make millions of dollars. But the idea that you appearing on our podcast, which again, I love our podcast, but you know, we're not, you know, a, a studio or not a network to benefit an indie film released by a small boutique distributor that is going to make you know, in the five figures for transactional distribution, it's not going to harm any sort of ecosystem. That's how I feel. But yeah, I don't. I don't think halting the release of indie films like this one is is beneficial to the strike in any way, right? right. Like, yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, so I don't. I don't, I don't, I don't think anyone would argue that really. No, that's a really good point. I mean, like, I really deeply believe in like trying to promote the health of the independent film market. Obviously, both of you do too. And yeah, it would suck if the if the guilds got in the way of sort of this little tiny baby duck that's being attacked by, you know, huge million dollar IP franchise. A beautiful duck. A beautiful, <laughs> beautiful duck. A beautiful duck. A hundred percent. Okay. But yeah, I don't think the guild's intention is to like hurt the kind of like hippie micro budget indie film market. So I appreciate your validation. That's how I've been viewing like my press tour, if you could call I it. I mean, that. yeah, dude, if Mission Impossible is coming out this weekend or whatever, like and 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 Indiana Jones and all these other big temple movies and we're all going to see them, like why why are you gonna get in trouble for promoting your little tiny indie movie? Seems like exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's that interesting thing. And I'll need to decide if I want to keep this on the podcast or not. But it's like, it's more that most of the transactions will be happening on Amazon and Apple. And that's what I hate is that like, mm. I I maybe it's like, I would almost advocate for someone with that self distribution model just to push people towards Vimeo. Sure. But then we're facing that thing of like, how does my aunt access a Vimeo movie, right? Like she knows how to yeah. go to Amazon and rent a movie. So you teach I think her. the thing. You do yeah, a little right. video mm. and you teach <laughs> a little her. Video. 
Um, <laughs> but it's that thing where it's like we do have to play the game a little bit just to be relevant. And, you know, I wish that half of each of our transactions wasn't going into Jeff Bezos's pocket, but it, yeah. it has to be that way. So that's like we're the only like signatory guilt, I feel, to use a pun, like residual guilt, right? Like that's the only place I feel it is like knowing yeah. that our film with the boutique distributor will be living and existing primarily with Jeff Bezos and Tim Cook. You know, it's like... It's yeah, weird. but like, do, do, do we all take our movies off of fucking Amazon and iTunes because the strike's happening? Like, we can't do that as indie filmmakers. Like, that's just... Right. That's not a fair expectation to expect of us, I don't think. We right? can't because I, then I we, have to pay, we have to burden the cost of putting it back on Amazon and iTunes because right. it's exactly. <laughs> two of the exactly. most popular platforms for indie filmmakers. Right. I, sorry, I feel like I'm getting defensive because I came out so hot and then I'm like, well, maybe Jeff's right. Maybe I should double no. down on this to make myself <laughs> feel better. <laughs> it's really validating. I've been like on Twitter, obviously, the sat- just a little peek behind the curtain if anyone's interested. We're recording this on the day where we find out at midnight it's sad striking. So excited. I'm like oh, on boy. the edge of my seat. They but have I- to strike. They have to strike. I, know. Oh, my God. I will be heartbroken oh. if they don't hold the line. Dear God. But I, it's a weird, I feel like it's validating actually to hear and speak with other indie filmmakers just because like so much of the conversation is focused around sort of the top of the pyramid in terms of production, even guild membership. And there is this other, this other little school of baby ducklings, as we were just talking about, who are trying to figure out like where they fit into the animal kingdom of movie making. So yeah. it's actually, I really appreciate it, Liz. And it's, I'll sleep a little better tonight because I feel like I understand and empathize with what you're saying and agree with it. Yeah. Well, I just, I have a friend who's pre WGA, but not as far along as you are. And he was encouraged by his colleagues to, to stop writing. Yeah. To stop Completely. writing. Wow. Like I will personally say, stop writing his own personal projects. If you choose a career in the arts, you're doing it because of some sort of personal catharsis, some sort right. of emotional catharsis. And to have anyone encourage you or discourage you from fulfilling that, like that very important therapeutic exercise is very upsetting to me. Again, I'm super pregnant and like have been snapping at everyone all day. So I love it. Um, <laughs> well, <fiery>. uh, oh. <laughs> It's funny, Rob Foreman, who's a strike captain and a member of the WGA, like he came on our show and I think he said the exact same thing that he was writing something for himself during this time. So I, I feel like yeah. it's totally cool, you know? Even if it's just for your own soul, right? Like it's, yes. yeah. we got stuff in there, right? We got to yes. we gotta get it out in the final draft yeah. or we'll melt. Yes. They, they can't take your art away from you. <laughs> if they can oh, take yeah. away your jobs, they can't take away your art. That's yours, you know? Yes. Well said. Yeah. But we should move on. Yes. <laughs> what's the for our final set of questions? What's the first film you ever made or wrote or whatever? However you interpret that question, and how do you feel about it now? I knew this was going to get asked because I listened to the podcast and I forgot to. <laughs> I made like you know what I'm picturing like when I was eight. I made like a Matrix. Like this was like when like Matrix was like the big conversation talking point with my friend Ben. The two of us just like alternated filming each other going into the Matrix. And like our big revolutionary filmmaker decision was like turning the camera upside down when we were in the Matrix. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was like those were my early Fincher Fincher days. I think I would love to see that movie and probably feel a lot of warmth towards that eight year old dum dum making Matrix videos in his backyard is how I think I would feel about it. <laughs> nice. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Ooh, I'm going to steal from Meg LaFauve and Lorian McKenna, who are my mentors. They talk about writing into your lava, which is sort of the language they use to talk about your own sort of shame and personal trauma as a way to fuel interesting art. And it's interesting because I think people hear that and they think like depressing, drama, boring. But the best comedy is also fueled from embarrassment or shame or mistakes. Both of your films, I thought, seemed beautifully personal, even though they were operating in specific genres. And that's what makes film interesting. I think the least interesting movies are always the ones that don't have anything to say or feel like they could have been made by AI, right? So (laughs) I think writing into your lava, I'm stealing that from Megan Lorian, but that's probably the best filmmaking advice I've ever gotten. It's very beautiful. I liked it a lot. Give us some bad filmmaking advice you've received or heard. I feel like, I'm not going to mention who, but when I was in pre-production, like building the look of the movie, there was this kind of filmmaking mentor who kept telling me like, I had to have really, really big set pieces for this micro budget movie. And first of all, like I just knew with our budget, 
any like huge set piece we attempted would have looked really shitty. And two, like I was writing kind of like an intimate character dramedy. Like I'm not going to have like a car chase in the middle of this movie about high schoolers like mourning their their friend. So I think like the extension of the bad advice that I got was like, if you're writing a specific genre, you have to understand the conventions of that genre. And you can't just like write a set piece into a, there's nothing worse than watching a movie and then all of a sudden feeling like you're watching a different movie. So I think the advice to like shove like buzzword or like buzzy scenes into a movie that was very tonally specific was just a really bad piece of advice. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? You know, I think like I I liked directing a lot more than I thought I would, which is very scary. So I think, you know, whose career I love is Nicole Hollis Center. She's my favorite filmmaker. Well, you have great taste, Liz. Yeah, we together, yeah, we have great you. taste. Yeah, because she watched Bread and Butter and she That's gave amazing. notes on it. Yeah. Well, she, I don't know if you've seen her new movie yet, but it rocks. No, I haven't. I haven't. The thing I love about Nicole Hollis Center is like she writes big studio movies or like consults on them or like will get pulled on to movies if they need like a sharp female perspective. But she also like directs her small little movies. And like, I feel like I would love that career of like, I'm a working writer and like, maybe I'm sort of like living in the studio system, but like I get to make my like little character movies once every couple of years. Like that feels like a dream. Like I love Kelly Reichardt, but her movies are also small that I think it can be hard. I do feel like her newest movie cut through the noise a little bit, but I love the idea of like Nicole Hall Center just like really does both. It's very cool. And I think that's really hard to do, but that's an aspirational goal for me. It's a good goal. Yeah. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself? Do it sooner. Like do it younger, I think, or try it earlier, even for no budget. But I I sometimes think the difference between people who kind of like make it and don't is that like the ones who made it did it. I just feel like there's so much talk and understandably like fear, but like go make your no budget iPhone movie. Like you'll learn so much. Just do it and do it as young as possible and just keep doing it. And have you ever like heard that parable of the sculpture teacher who like has, he like divides his class in two. I don't know if it's real or apocryphal, but there's this story of like an art class, like a sculpture class with 20 students and the sculpture professor on day one was like, okay, section A, there are 10 of you. You all only get to make one piece of art, one sculpture, and you have all semester to make it as beautiful and wonderful as you can. And section B, your concrete goal and your only goal is to make as many as you can. Just like keep going and keep making art. And overwhelmingly, the best and most like artistically interesting pieces were in the section B when they just kept making shit. So I feel like start younger and just go and just make stuff. And then last question, is making movies hard? This is such an interesting question because it's like so succinct and yet so deep. I'd say yes, (laughs) it is hard is what I would land on, but worth it. Amazing. You did it. Yeah. Thanks, y'all. I'm so honored. This was so much fun. We should do this every week just to hang out as pals. Yeah, it is fun. I, I feel like that's like the, the the joy of being a podcaster, right? Is that you get to like hang out with people in a very intimate way, like every week or however often you do the show, you know? It's pretty sweet. Totally. Totally. Wait, yeah. do your CTA. Get people to do exactly what you want them to oh, do with the words. Thank you very much. Um, I will say, so my <laughs> movie, Always Lola, I don't know when this episode is releasing, but it's you can pre-order it on Apple or buy it on TVOD starting on August 1st on any of the big ones. And I'm really proud of it. And I will say, sometimes I hear grief dramedy and I'm like, ugh, I don't want to watch like a depressing movie about death. But people say it's really funny and like ultimately warm. So if you're looking just for like a kind of a feel good, warm 87 romp, 87 minute romp with some laughs, always Lola. And whenever I get self-conscious talking about the movie from a writer's and director's standpoint, I will say this cast is amazing. So I feel totally comfortable just like bragging on how amazing the performances are in the film. So go check it out. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! Ulrich, what do you remember about our talk with Jeff Graham? Oh, I remember that Jeff was a lot of fun. It was really interesting to hear about his focus into, you know, pitching and getting features made and stuff like that after, you know, with this feature about to come out, which is like really cool. And it was fun because like I was in the exact same place that he was a year ago. And so it's Mm -hmm. just fun to see somebody like with that excitement and energy, you know, around their feature coming out, which is, which of course you should be excited. And it's a really exciting time, you know, but I also just couldn't help but think about 
how he's had a career of podcasting and getting paid to be a podcaster. And like, we've been doing it just as long as he has and I'm not getting paid. <laughs> well, like, he's teamed up with higher profile people. Oh, than we have. I know, but I just, but he's like made it like, it's a job that he's done. He's it's like, dude, I, should, I, I could be a podcast person as a real job. Yeah. Like I should be doing that. Yeah. You know, but uh, anyways, I don't know. Just a, it's a silly. You could thought do that. that like, I, you know, the other thing I have, like when I wa- watch these shows and they're like, oh, the podcast, uh, watch, listen to the podcast after hosted by someone I've never heard of. I'm like, man, why am I not the someone I've never heard of right. hosting these podcasts? I should be doing that. That could I, be you. Could be me or Liz. Like, why aren't we doing uh, this? You uh, know, okay. <laughs> you don't <laughs> this want is to? good. This is good for me. This one is uh, good. Yeah. Don't you don't get anymore. paid to talk about, uh, you know, uh, sex in the city or whatever, or no. just like that. No, no. 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 Really? Yeah. Wow. I would get paid to, to talk about that or any other show. I was a film I, critic for four years. I, I did that. I did the, like the wax yeah. scene and the sound bites and you try to get the pull quotes. You want to get on the movie poster. I hate it all. I hate I hate well, the machinery. But that, but that's not it's, this is different. It's more like what we do for but our show, money. but all about <laughs> a, a certain show. Like, you know, you'd like I would love to do the silo podcast if there was such a thing. Uh, be amazing, you know? Oh, you just pick sex in the city. I was like, no, I thought sex in the city was like you're you're picking like a kind of like a soulless vehicle that we would be paid to do <laughs> you, but something that you really love yeah i guess yeah. i would want to do that yeah that could be or fun like, or whatever hbo hired me to do because they do it from all that like succession i would do the succession podcast that'd be great i'd watch succession to get paid to talk about it yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> sure <laughs> Anyways, what do you remember from our talk with Jeff? That's all I could think about. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a valid point. I think that Jeff comes off incredibly confident. And in this podcast, he showed some vulnerability. He was talking about how he likes to be chosen, how he likes to be picked. And it was really nice to see that side of him because I had not seen that side of him. Right. So like, mm. you, you know, that I love like when people start acting vulnerable, it's like my favorite part mm. of what we do. So that's what I remember is when Jeff was talking about his his desire to be picked and liked because I understand that very well because I have the exact same affliction. Yeah. And, and in general, it was just a very good conversation and it was great to have Jeff on. Yeah, that's fun. I, I actually forgot about that until you just mentioned it now. And I remember at the time being like, wow, that was a really interesting thing he just said. That was cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you, Jeff, for opening up your soul to us a little bit. Yeah. Amazing. So another really cool thing is our segment, Ask the Expert. So this is another thing, another segment that uh, our producer, Eric Toms, have come, has come up with. And this is a segment where Eric basically asks us a question that he thinks that we would be the expert in. So something that we should know the answer to and, and be able to guide everyone with our answer, which I think is tough because some of these questions are hard and I don't know, think we always have the definitive answer, but like at least it's fun to talk about. So here is this week's question. Here you go, Liz. When deciding to make a film, do you focus on what will sell well or are you only concerned about with telling your story? I'm never thinking about what will sell well. I don't know what will sell well. I think anyone who says that they know what will sell well is... A maniac like that's not an accurate thing that you can predict you're not Nostradamus that's not I don't even you know so I always just think do I enjoy it is it fun does it push boundaries in some way could it make people uncomfortable that's my favorite thing is to make people uncomfortable so Mm. my goal is like could I make someone watching this feel uncomfortable I like that a lot I'm I'm not necessarily thinking about story either I'm thinking about is there something in this story that excites me, how do I kind of build up to those moments and then come down from those moments? But no, I'm never talking about thinking about commerciality except for casting and genre. Casting and genre, casting and genre, casting and genre. You wanna make it look as good as possible, sound as good as possible, work with the best people. That's being commercial, being something that people could receive well, filming something that's beautiful. But I don't go, ah, let's add some sexy witch- witches into Hansel and Gretel because sex sells, you know, like that's not <laughs> what I'm thinking about. What about you? Yeah, and never, never add a sex scene or a naked scene just for fun. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like 
if anything is going in the story, it's because it it needs to be there for the story to make sense or for you know what I'm trying to say to come across as a as an artist or a storyteller. I'm I'm always making something like I very rarely write something that isn't a genre, right? So like almost everything is either science fiction or horror or sci-fi horror or sci-fi thriller or horror thriller or whatever. It's all always some sort of genre. So I feel like to me, that's like my commerciality, you know, is like that I just am a genre filmmaker. And then when I'm writing or deciding to make a movie, it's really about like, is this something like that's new and different? Is there something about this that's special that other that hasn't been done before or that you don't see often? And is it something that I really love and enjoy and want to see personally? Because if I want to see it, then there's going to be other people who want to see it too. So like, that's where my head's at when I'm like, you know, trying to decide if I'm going to make the movie or not, you know, because I feel like, yeah. And then really, if you can li- like, if you like it enough where you think you can spend, you know, four, five, eight, six, seven, whatever years working on this thing, that you're not going to get tired of it, that you really deserve it, think it thinks it deserves to exist in the world. You know, I think those are all like the kind of questions you need to like be asking yourself and like come up with yeses for before I decide that, that I really want to make a movie because you know, making movies is so hard. It's like, yeah, you don't want to do it frivolously, you know? Agreed. Eric, I hope so, we answered your question. Yeah. I, this, I really want to hear from anybody. And like, don't feel, if you feel like, if this if you actually write thinking about like what will sell, I, I want to hear that from somebody. And like, don't feel embarrassed because maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're doing it all wrong. And that's why we're not fancy time filmmakers because we're not, <laughs> we're not writing what we think will sell. But you can send us other questions, comments, suggestions, or thoughts on this to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which would be amazing. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Make sure to check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. They're an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your lug line to a network of industry professionals, and of course, their top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers so head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today thanks to jeff graham for coming on the show thanks to our editor jeff reimuch for doing the editing thanks to robert jones for handling all of our social media and thanks to our producer eric toms for just simply being awesome thanks to you all for listening and we'll talk to y'all next week You know what also is equally amazing, or maybe not quite as amazing, is Ask the Expert. Do you, do you even know about this? Uh, well, you of course you know. Um, God, that was terrible. Cut. <laughs> Done. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.